Hi there, Neil here. Obviously, you love to travel. That's why you're listening to this podcast. Circa, our app available right now from the App Store on iOS, is filled with podcasts and guides for travelers. But more than that, it has a feature that we're calling the Circa Concierge, where you can have any question about any place you're traveling answered by real people on the ground. We're giving you a friend to ask anywhere in the world. And hey, if you've got questions about Barcelona, you might even get me. Because I love to help people discover my city. And if you're the same way for the city where you live, then we want you to become part of the Circa Concierge too. Right now, we're searching for concierges in Barcelona, Rome, London, Paris, Madrid, Venice, and New York City. Don't see your city listed? That's okay. We'll be rolling out new cities throughout the year, and yours might just be next. If you love where you live and love to help travelers, sign up now to be a Circa Concierge. Help out our users and earn tips for the knowledge you have about your own city or country. Head over to circatravel.com forward slash concierge and sign up today. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. We need a temperature read in here. It's hot. It's smoking hot. <laughs> Three studs and one flamingo. <laughs> Is this a, us avoiding talking about Elon Musk? I bet he would enjoy this conversation. I, I bet he could He'd really, bring really a lot to this conversation. Wow. Should we give him a buzz? <laughs> <laughs> A destination isn't always a place. Sometimes it's a new way of seeing things. I'm Neil Innes. And I'm Andres Bartos. From Frequency Machine, this is Passport. Your ticket to everywhere. Elon Musk wants to put a chip in your brain so that you never have to talk again. Mark Zuckerberg is creating algorithms that can read your mind. Google founders Sergey Brin and Larry Page want to help you live forever. Behind closed doors in cavernous labs on a sun-kissed stretch of the northern California coast, the world's wealthiest people are hatching plans that will change the world as we know it. This is Silicon Valley today. The Bay Area around San Francisco is one of the richest, most beautiful regions of the United States. And it's a place like no other on Earth. People here think a little differently. It's either a dystopian nightmare 
for the salvation of our species. Today on Passport, we're going into the matrix, inside Silicon Valley. Well, I mean, we're walking into the territory of tech. I mean, the only visual representation I have of Silicon Valley is the introduction to the TV series Silicon Valley. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what I imagine it to look like. Well, one one of the guys I spoke to actually did say that everything in that show is pretty much bang on. But in terms of the in terms of the look of the place, I think it's just surprisingly normal a lot of it. It's very low-rise office parks, but once you get I think once you get behind those gated behind walls, the garages, then the fun begins. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we were just talking before we got into this that we're doing this the day that the heads of the biggest tech corporations are in front of Congress. Yeah. Yes. Bezos, Zuckerberg and, and Cook. Cook, Tim Cook. Everyone did Okay, apart from Face Man, who I mentioned before, which is what <laughs> he's talking about, Zuckerberg. Yeah, Face Man. Face Man, <laughs> um, who just looks like an amalgamation of everybody's face on Facebook. I'm just gonna do a review of Mark Zuckerberg's face. Oh, no. It's the weirdest. Oh, no, here we go. It's the weirdest face I've ever seen. Poor man. It looks not. like he has a swimming cap on, <laughs> like a hairy swimming cap. I feel he's one of those guys who looks like he's wearing a mask of his own face. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's just face swapped himself. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's basically the most important place on earth right now. Yeah. Right? Mm. Yeah. Like, the concentration of wealth, money, and the the gaze of the world on that place is crazy. I don't think there's any other place like that right no. now. No. Yeah, I think it's the money thing these days. The amount of money, especially since, I mean, I guess since Facebook, since social media, the amount of money that is there now has basically allowed that to happen, has has drawn the gaze, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I was in San Francisco in the 90s where you you still had a little bit of like hate Ashbury kind of the rests of that feeling. But everyone I know has fled or has has had to flee. I've been pushed out. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Like the price of things is well, it's, the hi- it's the highest rent in the United States. I think. Absolutely. I think it's $3,700 median for like a one bedroom flat. It's the new Hollywood. But it's bigger than that. It's, it's like the kind of dream. I mean, yeah, the joke is in the 90s you had a script. Now you have an app. Yeah. But maybe now that's even changed. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. It's like what AI kind of tech do you have? <laughs> I don't know. It moves so quickly such a strange place. I've got this idea to take blood from young people and pump it into old people. I think that's like, I know done. exactly where, you, where to go. Done. <laughs> <laughs> Anything like that, you're going straight to San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. From the southern end of San Francisco, down past fishing villages and surf towns, to the streets of San Jose, lies an evergreen peninsula. It's filled with orchards and vineyards, flanked by the Santa Cruz Mountains, which stare down at the choppy waters of the Pacific. Sounds pretty idyllic, doesn't it? For outdoor pleasures, the Bay Area in Northern California is tough to beat. But if you prefer being inside, staring at a screen late into the night, that's fine too. Because at the foot of those lush mountains and in between the endless greenery, there's an army of programmers and engineers, coders and hackers, tinkering away. They call this region Silicon Valley, named after the computer chips they've made there since the 50s. It's grown a little bit since then. Today, it's the heart of global technology. 
in mammoth office complexes. Billionaire owners rollerblade to their next meeting while employees sit on beanbags chatting about AI over microdoses of LSD. But to folks like you and I, Silicon Valley seems impenetrable. We'll be needing a guide, someone to take us by the hand to explore the inner sanctum of global tech. And luckily, I know a guy. I grew up in Silicon Valley. Um, I consider myself a native. Adam Fisher is a journalist and author. He's pretty obsessed with tech. His book, Valley of Genius, tells the stories of the hackers and freaks who forged Silicon Valley's tech boom. You know, I had that classic geeky kind of childhood. I went to a computer camp, which was the first computer camp on the West Coast. Adam's drawling accent is pure Northern California, and I can see his skate and surfboards in the background as we speak. So Silicon Valley originally was really just Stanford and the counties around it. Everything from that mountain range to the water of the bay is Silicon Valley. The Bay Area is naturally stunning, but the urban centers of Silicon Valley proper, Palo Alto and Mountain View, well, they look surprisingly normal. Until Google moved there, Mountain View was infamous for being, well, pretty boring. But take the time to look a little closer and you'll see something different. Stores run by robots, robots cleaning the streets, people zooming by on electric scooters, drinking raw water and soy lent with sight and sound augmenting implants in. Because in 2020, the entire Bay Area has been subsumed by tech. Touchdown at San Fran International today, and you can grab a coffee from a robot arm at a Cafe X. Hop in an Uber, a Tesla, naturally, to drive you to breakfast at Bucks of Woodside, which is where Mr. Musk came up with the idea for the car you're being driven in. Then while away the rest of the day down south near San Jose at Apple's $5 billion park and visitor center in Cupertino, There's an AR experience and an Apple store where you can buy exclusive t-shirts, tote bags, and loads of other tech merch sold nowhere else on the planet. There's plenty of computing museums in Silicon Valley too. This is the region with the world's richest tech heritage, after all. And in a way, you know, Silicon Valley has uh, grown up. It's kind of like Detroit in in a way. Like, there's three main players. They've got everything, you know, buckled down. Google, Facebook, and Apple... These are Silicon Valley's factories of tech. Their combined revenue in 2019 was nearly 500 billion, about the same as the GDP of Nigeria or Iran. But then, you know, there's another Silicon Valley too, where people, uh, you know, the the engineers are, are just constitutionally just bored by, you know, working for the man. And I think that's the interesting parts of Silicon Valley. Not, not Google, not Facebook, not Apple. They're not interesting anymore. The cool stuff, the creative stuff, it's not being carried out by internet tech giants anymore. People are bored of apps. Hardware is in vogue. The engineering that I find to be interesting now is like people building flying cars and people building, you know, rockets. There's a company that's still called Stealth, which is um, they're going to be building a rocket a day and going to space every day. Keep up, Elon. Why aren't we, why aren't we on the moon? Well, I got a couple billion. I don't want to spend it on art. 
I'm gonna spend it on rockets. I guarantee you it's gonna happen, as crazy as that sounds, because anything that is not like literally uh, forbidden by the laws of physics will eventually happen. This is the scale that people work on in Silicon Valley. Nothing is impossible. Everything is permitted. Even making machines that think like and are indistinguishable from humans. Yes, my background is in artificial intelligence. That's Jason Sosa. He's an entrepreneur and advocate for exciting new technologies. I started a computer vision company uh, that was letting cameras detect people's faces, their age, their gender, their emotions, and started this pretty early in the renaissance of AI. Artificial intelligence. It's everywhere. And Jason has been at the forefront of innovation in it for his whole career. Those self-driving Google cars you see rolling through Palo Alto, they're running on AI. Those algorithms telling you what to buy on Facebook? Yeah, that's AI too. AI has pretty much become a marketing necessity for new Silicon Valley startups. But what actually is it? Now, it's probably better to describe what AI is not. AI is not alive. It, is not a, it doesn't have feelings. It does not have like a, a murderous intention to kill you. <laughs> it's really statistics. It's, it's what you do when you lo- load up Netflix. It's finding you patterns and recommendations. When you look up, when you pull up Google Maps. As a society, we should be just celebrating automation and robots and and technology. Um, But it's their application of it that makes it challenging. AI is essentially machine learning. Creating a computer which can take into account its surroundings and adapt its behavior to achieve its goals. Research into how to properly utilize it and release its potential is probably the most significant technological field in Silicon Valley at the moment. How good they're getting at it is well, kind of terrifying. Once a machine is able to teach itself, over a period of time, it will begin to convince us that it is real. But I don't think there's anyone in doubt um, in the tech spheres that, that we're headed in this direction. So to answer how Silicon Valley became a place where no idea is too crazy, where even the sky is no limit, let's hop on our DeLorean electric scooter and take a trip back to the Bay Area of the 60s and 70s to meet the people who actually created this place. Let's head back to a time of free love, psychedelic drugs, and the very first computer chips. Oh, and anarchy. Just the right amount of anarchy. Ask not what your country can do for you. One of the best fucking rock groups in the world, the Grateful Dead! Radio signal transmitted by the Soviet Sputnik. The first man-made satellite this is July 20th, 1969. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Oh man, yeah. the hippies, the hippies that built Silicon Valley. That's what's that's that's what's special about this. So, I, you know, if you did, there will be blood. That's like the story of oil in America. This is like there will be tech. <laughs> <laughs> that terrain that was there beforehand makes it unlike any other kind of boom, industrial boom in history. Yeah. Because you didn't have a bunch of like people in sandals with long hair, wearing polyester pants, smoking joints yeah. and building the future. It's a mentality thing though, I reckon though, Harry. Like, you know, those people who decided, yeah, no, no limits, man, no limits. Like the kids and the grandkids of those people, that's where they all, that's where they all are. Yeah, and I think there's just something about the Bay Area. It's always been like that. Yeah. Even back to like the like the late nineteenth century, they're saying it's like it's almost kind of weird American romanticism yeah. that that existed there. Well, yeah. it's, it's a combination of 
the brains that are serious mathematicians, engineers, and coders and all that. And then on the other side, the people that uh, look up at the moon, think about how you can get up there or how you can travel faster to L.A. Yeah. Or the, it's, the, yeah, it's the dreamers. It's still the dreamers. But it's interesting, I think, what Adam said Facebook, Google, Apple are not actually where the really interesting stuff is at. It's, it's kind of changed. It's almost like this retro futurism thing where actually going to space again is the new it thing. It's become like like punk rock music or something. It's become like all of the cool stuff's happening on the outside, like always. And that's decided to happen to tech. It's when you have such a huge concentration of talent for sure money yeah and then you have so many people that have already done the kind of established things that you have space for proper crazy ideas it's not just money it's not just facebook it's saying okay we have this issue let's solve it by doing something completely absurd (laughs) (laughs) by this point we should be used to it but it's still like sounds like science fiction In the 60s, when Silicon Valley really got going, it was actually the dark horse in the USA's tech race. The Northeast was the place to be. They had IBM and MIT. So the West Coast needed another trick to become the world's center of technology. Here's Adam again. The most important factor for this discussion is the fact that people in the Bay Area just think a little differently. San Francisco is a very young city that attracted people, first for the gold rush, from all around the world. And they brought their ideas with them. And it was a very um, kind of free place, or lawless place, depending on how you want to characterize it. The pirate tradition, the Barbary Coast. The Bay Area is full of myths of its renegade heritage. And in the 60s, it was the hippies who ruled. Flower power, protest, drugs... This was the climate in which Silicon Valley was born. Google, Facebook, eBay, Apple, they all were started as kind of a sense of play, really. A sense of fun. They were not not money-making ideas. And it was a very creative community. And uh, a lot of people came in kind of from the arts. But uh, they really, you know, they really thought they were creating tools for the augmentation of human values. There were no venture capitalists searching for the next billion-dollar startup when Silicon Valley began. For the early pioneers of computing, technology was a high-minded intellectual pursuit or a way to express their playful, creative whims. One of the biggest companies in Silicon Valley at the time was called Xerox Park. They were pretty much the Google of the 70s. Yeah, so, uh, you know, Xerox Park was um, a California place. Like, they had a weekly meeting where they all sat on beanbag chairs. But they were uh, tasked with creating the future, inventing the future, and they did. The future came in the form of what is arguably the very first personal computer, the Alto. It changed the whole idea of computing from a military machine to a tool for the everyman. Steve Jobs infamously nabbed the whole idea for his fledgling company, Apple. But the engineers who created the software for the Alto weren't stiffs in suits or snotty-nosed geeks. They all, you know, they're all considered hippies by their kind of corporate masters back at Xerox. But then one day they met a real hippie, a guy named Alvy Ray Smith. 
And his dream is to create an animated movie with a computer. Alvy Ray Smith saw computers as a new artistic frontier. He helped develop color graphics and animation as we know it today on late night benders at Xerox Park. Two decades after those nights at Xerox, Alvy did realize his dream of making a full length animated movie on a computer. It came out in 1995 and its name was Toy Story. To infinity and beyond. While the hippies were searching for Nirvana through acid and psychedelic music, the original techies were expanding their minds through brand new technology. During the whole movement west, it, uh, all the weirdos and crazies and the idealists piled up on the west coast in San Francisco. That's Michael Michael. Yeah, two Michaels for the price of one. If you're looking for a free-thinking tech pioneer, someone who mixes technical expertise with a right-on Bay Area attitude, he's your guy. When I first came to San Francisco, I was uh, following a lot of the ideas of the B generation. Michael is tall, wily, and oddly softly spoken for a man who's been part of some seriously out there stuff. We integrated a lot of uh, ideas uh, about philosophy and, and freedom about, and about what tech should be. Michael and his tech pals weren't locked away in cloistered office parks back then. They were part of a wider, weirder community. The zone is that weird, uncomfortable place where, indeed, anything can happen. Give me the key. Give me the key. Keep telling yourselves this is only a trip. This is only a trip. In the mid-80s, I heard about this uh, underground group called the Cacophony Society. It was a secret society of the absurd. They orchestrated bizarre events in the San Francisco underground. They were a seriously wild bunch. Part Dada, part Situationist, part Pranksters, part Street Theatre, part Flash Mob. They would explore abandoned buildings. Uh, they climbed the Golden Gate Bridge in the middle of the night and were doing these really amazing, outrageous things that, that were uh, participatory experiences. So I decided that the Cacophony Society should be open to everyone. And I came up with a slogan that you may already be a member. You may already be a member of the Cacophony Society. That means you explored San Francisco's in the middle of the night. You dined in tuxes on the Golden Gate Bridge. You ran around wasted dressed as Santa, starting the first ever SantaCon. And you stormed upstream against the crowds in the San Francisco Marathon, dressed as a salmon. You also went on mysterious, mind-expanding zone trips into the desert, inspired by avant-garde Russian director Tarkovsky's film Stalker. The Cacophony Society is a randomly gathered network of free spirits united in the pursuit of experiences beyond the pale of mainstream society. Fight Club, the book-turned-movie with Ed Norton and Brad Pitt, its author Chuck Palahniuk was a Cacophony member when their hijinks spread to Portland and across the USA. He actually based Fight Club's Project Mayhem on the Cacophony Society. But Fight Club isn't the only thing they inspired. In 1988, I heard about a group of people who were going to go down to the beach in San Francisco and burn a wooden man. 
And I thought, well, that sounds like some kind of pagan event or something. And I thought, this this is great. And the next year, I put it as a listing in the Cacophony Society newsletter. And all of a sudden, several hundred people showed up. And that was the beginning of, real beginning of Burning Man. Dude, you're doing Burning Man you're doing right Burning now. Man, you're going to burn this year. We're, gonna, Dude, we're all going to go. It's an excellent Californian accent, Daniel. Um, not insulting at all to anybody listening. <laughs> Got to get all the syllables in there. It's just weird that they, like, just, let's just go burn a big man. What that whole thing has kind of become. But back in the day, it was it was still the same kind of people who were going. All these Silicon Valley guys, they were all going there in the 90s. And now it's evolved into something which is, if you're in Silicon Valley, you have to go there yeah. in a very different way. Oh, no. Now it's a mutant. Like when he said hundreds of people, now it's tens of thousands of people. It has its own post office. People fly yeah. in workers to build their <laughs> camps. People have sushi chefs flown in. We're talking crazy town. Yeah, it's it's kind of become a it's a, like a badge of honor, you know, to be a, a burning a burning manor. What do they call them? A burning manor. Burning, burning manor. Yeah. Go to. It sounds like the magical period of all of this. Yeah. Like the '68 era of experiential tech hippiedom. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck you call it. <laughs> But it still it still has like the innocence, the utopia is still there. There's still like this kind of experimental nature to it, exploratory. It's like almost contrary to everything else that's happening in America in the eighties, Reagan America yeah, yeah. with everybody wearing suits and trying to be yuppies and trying to make money on the stock market. You know, it's like a parallel world. Yeah, these guys are just there in San Francisco playing, trying to trying to make make games. It was it's like Steve Wozniak, the other half of Apple. Yeah literally made the first Apple computer, the Apple II, I think, um, so he could play his arcade games that he, that he loved playing. Fantastic. He literally just programmed the whole thing so he could do that. And that's what these guys were doing. They were just like, they wanted to game. They wanted to just, you know. Look for ways to have fun. Exactly, yeah. Well, it's, the, it's like the ultimate dream, right, to make a bunch of money but still be able to, like, hang out in a beanbag. Still be a cool guy. <laughs> yeah. We're still cool guys. We're still cool. <laughs> we'll be right back after the break with robots, big and small, like really small. We'll see you in a bit. Hi, everyone. Circa's recruiting new concierges. A Circa concierge is a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people on the ground, never bots. If you want to be a concierge for your city, go to circatravel.com to sign up. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana. Where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. In the 90s, Silicon Valley, Burning Man and the Cacophony Society all embodied the Bay Area's free-thinking philosophy and disregard for rules. This was a time when you really could be a freak on the weekend and into work doing million-dollar deals on Monday morning. 
Yeah, I remember going to a, a board meeting in L.A. Uh, with uh, some very powerful government people, and I'm wearing a suit and tie, and it's Monday, and I'm thinking if they knew what I did last night, uh, canoeing under the wharves of San Francisco, <laughs> they probably would not have understood. By the 1990s, Silicon Valley had lost its place as the West Coast tech hub, but it didn't mean the Bay Area had become boring or lacked imagination. Anything but. You had virtual reality being invented by a dreadlocked hippie called Jared Lanier and mad, drug-fueled raves hosted by a cyberpunk tech fanzine called Mondo 2000. They were the precursor to Wired. These parties were where all the Silicon Valley tech heads were hanging out, including Michael. Oh, that was another side. Gosh, I'd almost forgotten. I'd done so much stuff. The Mondo 2000 group was uh, had headquarters in this old house in Berkeley, and attending their parties there was just amazing. And, and they were getting uh, drugs from the lab in Stanford that weren't even illegal yet. <laughs> it was crazy. The culture of Silicon Valley, long hidden away behind labs and screens, was coming out into the mainstream. And even onto the streets. Fasten your seatbelt. A guy in San Francisco has dreamed up a surefire way to scare you out of your wits. You're standing under the Eisenhower Freeway near South Park, San Francisco. Around you are 6,000 other people. You look to the left, there's a guy torching a tower of pianos with an enormous flamethrower. You look to the right, there's tons of rotten food being sprayed all over your head. Huge, shuddering brutes of machines are clunking towards you. Mechanical wrecking balls are clattering into each other. A humanoid robot with a drill for an arm is fighting a fire-spitting, four-legged metal freak. This is not some dystopian San Fran future. This was in 1989, and it was a show. A show to entertain the public, put on by Survival Research Laboratories, SRL for short. So I came out to San Francisco in 1978 and then uh, basically started breaking into all these abandoned factories. You know, I was pretty handy with burglary stuff, so I thought of the idea of SRO. I said, you could take all this equipment and you could put it together and make machines out of it and robots and you could do shows with them around the world. That's SRL's founder, Mark Pauline. He's a punk, an engineer, a mechanic, an artist and a true showman and revels in the visual power of destruction like few people I've ever met. It looks like a futuristic sci-fi movie. You know, the one where machines rule the world. SRL was another underground group in the Bay Area that started in the late 70s. Because rather than doing fun pranks or creating humanity-enhancing tech, SRL built enormous fighting robots. They say the physicists' ultimate goal is to release as much energy in the shortest period of time possible you know so i like to think of it like that it's showtime mark's robots are 20 foot high two-ton monstrosities there's the pulse jet engine which fires out a furious spinning column of hurricane fire the hand of god a spring-loaded giant metal hand which slams to the floor with a bone crushing eight tons of pressure the shockwave cannon which exhales super fast vortex rings of air not content with making these machines for show Mark would take them out into San Francisco at night and have them fight each other. In public. 
San Francisco was just this amazing, lawless place back then. You could really get away with anything, even murder, really. Everyone thinks that those shows are were all, like, underground and illegal, but you could just ask people, like, you could ask people at the school board, you'd say, hey, I want to use your school property for this giant show with machines and, and robots, and they're like, okay, fine, that sounds great. Nobody would ever say no, and that was the whole key to this stuff happening in San Francisco, the police didn't give a fuck. This was San Francisco in the 80s and 90s. It's all connected. SRL grew in no small part because of the Cacophony Society's newsletter. And Michael Michael told me he used to give his surplus high-tech equipment from Silicon Valley to Mark. The two were actually good friends. By the 90s, SRL were getting thousands of people into their shows. But their most legendary event had to be 1989's Illusions of Shameless Abundance. I did this show under the freeway, you know, the Illusions of Shameless Abundance show. That, you know, there was about five or 6,000 people. The show was really crowded. One of the things we did is we were snooping around the back of a packaging company in San Francisco. And there was a couple of cardboard boxes. And I opened one. And they were, they were full of the... TNT, military TNT canisters. They normally would be filled with C4 explosive, but we mixed up a bunch of plaster with sawdust particles and poured it into there. And so at one point during the show, we had this machine with a magnet on it pick up this black plastic bag, a huge black plastic bag we got somewhere. And the bag had a bunch of razor blades attached to strings. People started grabbing the razor blades and cutting it open. So all the bombs fell out on the ground and people were like, what the fuck? And they all moved back. <laughs> I had one real one that I made with a real ex high explosive in it. I lit that and threw it out in the middle of them and it went, it just exploded like this massive explosion. They were all missed, they were all gone after that. People were trying to blow up all the churches and all these people trying to blow them up all over the city. So it ended up being this bomb scare that went on for a week. Bomb-sniffing police dogs searched the construction area at Ocean Beach this morning. Two more fake devices, described as unsophisticated, possibly even stage props, were found today. If all that sounds like it was going to erupt in a fireball of craziness at some point, well, it already had. Mark blew off his hand in an accident building a machine in 1982, and around 1995, SRL started pissing off the San Fran Fire Department a little too much. And by the late 90s, all this chaos had even filtered into the business culture of Silicon Valley. Here's Adam again. The dot-com boom, you know, so much money was made in such a short time, I mean, which was like just infinite money coming into San Francisco. The dot-com boom drew a new type of person to Silicon Valley. The Wolves of Wall Street left New York and headed out west to take on those Californian idealists. The weirdos didn't stand a chance. Post Netscape, there's not a lot of overlap. You know, it's a whole new set of names. You could really start a history of Silicon Valley then if you, if you wanted. That was bonkers. That's yeah, he's a It's crazy. Mad. Finding TNT behind a factory. I mean, putting it in a bag, ha having a magnetized robot arm pick it up, razor tying blade. razor blades and string to it. And you're like, where is this going? The levels of crazy. Yeah, it just doesn't end. <laughs> That's, uh, I was going to say, 
I've always had in my mind this link between, you know, like the hippie culture, the the, the gold rush went to California. But yeah, when you mix punk into that, yeah, man, it's yeah. literally explosive. The first rule about punk robot club is <laughs> <laughs> nobody was like, no, we don't want you to fight. Yeah. They're all like, yeah, that sounds the school, good. <laughs> the school bo- he was telling me one of his first shows was actually they did it outside a, a gas station. Okay. <laughs> These pyrotechnics. <laughs> totally <stuff>. safe. <laughs> Like, I think he just gave him like twenty dollars or something, and he was like, "Yeah, all right, all right, I'll do go it. for it. <laughs> Stay away from the Could fuel you, pumps." Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Can you move the giant robot just in a meter over there? And these, I mean, you've got to look up what these things look like. They so there's are, videos online. Oh yeah, oh, they, and they are obscene. They are just monstrous, huge, enormous. Yeah, you've seen Robot Wars, right? Yeah, like remote control. Yeah, yeah, like disc with a with a circular yeah. saw on that. But Man. these things are honestly ten times the size of that. <laughs> And they are fighting. They're properly going at each other. It's so sick. And and it's art as well. I mean, that's the thing. that He comes from like an art background in Florida, I think, Mark Pauline. And that's how he sees the whole thing. He's just like, yeah, it's a show. It's art. And he does he, it in galleries and stuff. Yeah. And he lost his hand for this. Yeah, yeah he lost his hand. Yeah, in 1982 as well. So this is like... He's been that show. building robots with, a, with, with one hand. hand. And still is, yeah, with one hand. Yeah, the 90s in the Bay Area sounded... It sounded like, yeah, it was just feels like this kind of like hybrid mental tech rave culture. Totally. And then there's just robots fighting <laughs> in the background. It's like, what's going on? But then obviously, like, as we heard there, it all comes to an end with um, the dot-com boom. That, that, that's a real significant kind of... It's a watermark. Yeah. Exactly. Right. That's, that's a real marker. And then after that, everything's basically different. Mm. But as we'll find out... Ah. Some of it's still the same. It's <laughs> foreshadowing. Easy keeping. <laughs> Anybody keeping track? That was a tease from my start. <laughs> Silicon Valley today is different. After the dot-com bust of 2001, the years of plenty rolled on in. The monotonous suburban sprawl of Silicon Valley became filled with new age office campuses, equipped with valet parking, movie themed meeting rooms, bikes, slides, free food trucks. That's all in Google's Mountain View headquarters, by the way. You'll need an invite to get in. The ludicrous amounts of money that Silicon Valley's big three and the new Uber star disruptors brought with them priced out the burning men and sewer explorers from San Francisco and the Bay Area and it let in a flood of straight-edge, geeky programmers on seven-figure Google salaries. Goodbye, cacophony. Hello, the Big Bang Theory. There's not a big demand for batshit crazy shows anymore. People want safety, and people just want different... They want, they want it to be a phone app. If SRO was a phone app, it would be really popular. People really like to complain about the tech bros of Silicon Valley today, and it's not all unwarranted. But behind all the apps and innovation, there is still that same ethos in Silicon Valley. The nothing-is-impossible culture. It never left. It just evolved. And the characters are all essentially the same. They're just better funded. And so now what I find is some very wealthy individuals in the tech world are <coughs> wanting to produce big shows. I sold a commission to a very, another tech CEO you know, who collects art. And so that's what I've been building for the last year and a half. So it's way more complicated than any other machines that have been made here and probably more dangerous too. But What, what machine is this? Uh, it's a Predator Arm. It's a machine that uses, uh, uses like AI and advanced 3D mapping sensors. It uses those to map out people in front of it and then 
the AI looks and decides uh, who's the victim based on a bunch of algorithms, and then it uh, tra tracks that person and tries to kill them. <laughs> I'm making a flamethrower now for this 11-foot robot arm, and it's a very advanced flamethrower. It uses the injector nozzles from the F-35 uh, fighter jet engine. And it's actually a classified technology that you cannot buy. If I showed them to like third party, like Chinese people, I could get by go to prison for it. It's like treason. But talking about the future of AI actually opens the door to something else, something more radical and much weirder. It's called transhumanism. Instead of tech evolving to mimic human intelligence, this is about fusing tech with human beings. Here's Jason, our AI expert again. Transhumanism is the idea that man is merging with technology, that we are um, enhancing our capabilities like we would with eyeglasses, like we would with any tool. And we've been doing this for thousands and thousands of years, right? That's all. That's all that there is to it. And the natural progression of that is that over time, we will embed that into our bodies. We're, we're already hearing things of Elon Musk and Neuralink, uh, the ability for one brain to communicate with another brain. Ultimately, we, we can achieve a sort of symbiosis with artificial intelligence. And we can effectively have the option of merging with AI. It's opening up a whole new way of thinking around where we're headed as a species. Like with AI, there is a hugely positive side to transhumanism's goals. Elon Musk claims his newest venture Neuralink will be able to cure any brain injury with a chip in the back of your head wired up to your cerebral cortex. This means people who have suffered strokes, who have Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, even people who are paralyzed from the neck down. They'll all be able to talk again, walk again, be restored to their former selves. We're really not that far away if you look at the doubling effect of where technology is growing. So in the old days of computer the size of a building, we have them now the size of a, a phone that fits in our pocket. Um, you know, soon they'll be the size of a blood cell embedded into our bodies. And so that's the next you know, evolution of, of, uh, of technology. But transhumanism isn't just about health. For many Silicon Valley tech elites, it's more like a religion. There's a church of transhumanism. All right, welcome. Welcome to the Church of Perpetual Life. There's even a political party of transhumanism. This is truly a historic moment for the U.S. transhumanist party. These guys are the true believers. Some literally worship a divine AI godhead. It's an ideology they think will allow them to live forever. There's just so many ethical and like social implications for us to consider. Do these AIs become God? Do they become some sort of supernatural intelligence? Will they enslave us? Will they ex make us extinct? Will, are we their pets? So th those are kind of the questions that we're, we're facing now as a civilization. Dark portents about the future of technology have been around since the Luddites. But there's something about the state of modern tech which makes it seem so real and so close. Silicon Valley has always had a culture of radical tech optimism. But with the current money flying around now, tech CEOs are able to truly delve into their creative whims. Elon Musk's Neuralink is the most obvious, but Mark Zuckerberg is also allegedly working on similar mind-reading type software. Not to mention other Silicon Valley elites like Peter Thiel and Ray Kurzweil, who are literally queuing up to have their brains uploaded to the cloud. Yep, mind uploading. You know, like in the San Junipero episode of Black Mirror, or Upload, the new show on Amazon Prime. It's all the rage right now, especially in transhumanist circles. 
I, I have to be honest and I have to label myself a transhumanist. Meet Randall Cohen. When you start looking into mind uploading, not just talking about it, the people actually trying to do it, it's his name which keeps coming up over and over again. I am a transhumanist because the things I try to do fall within those the realm of those, those ideas that, that they care about. Randall has the measured tone of a scientist rather than a tech guy. He was pretty wary of associating completely with the entire transhumanist movement too. This is no doubt because he actually is a scientist. A computational neuroscientist, in fact. If you want to work out how to upload your mind to a computer or even the cloud, this is the career for you. But to get there, there's another step. It's called whole brain emulation. A computer which works like a human brain. Brain emulation, if we just forget the whole part for a second, I would define as not just carrying out a simulation of what the brain is supposed to achieve, but instead you're, you're emulating. In other words, you're using the solution that the brain uses by copying what the neurons are doing. And then whole brain emulation is really just saying, okay, we don't just want to understand how the retina works or how the hippocampus is doing its work. Instead, we want all these pieces working together. This is incredibly difficult to do. There are 86 billion neurons and 100 trillion synapses in your brain, and millions of them are working simultaneously right now just to listen to this podcast. But there are two ways scientists are currently trying to do it. One is called scan and copy, where you take a fully preserved brain, slice it extremely thin, run it through a super fast electron microscope that creates a 3D reconstruction of all the components of the brain, and hey presto. The other is called replacement, which is where you have a live brain and continuously replace little bits of it which are not working with tiny nanobots called neural dust, until eventually you have a whole new one. And once you've got the hardware, an emulated brain, your mind can then be uploaded to it. So it's really a bit more than just the, the dimension of longer lifespan. For me personally, it was always combined with this other bigger sense of understanding the blueprints of things and being able to change them. So it wasn't just about uh, living longer, but it was about, oh, we could just give ourselves a different brain. We could uh, make our augment our brain to be, to be able to do things we couldn't do before. Or, and the same would be true for our bodies. Our bodies could be entirely different bodies. We could have bodies that were suitable for living in space or living on Mars or whatnot. So for instance, if our memory really was memory, if we could actually remember what happened rather than just reconstructions of some portions of what may have happened at some point. Uploading your mind to a computer isn't just about immortality. You could build humanoid robot frames for your computerized mind that could live in space, that could breathe underwater. You could even hook it up to a virtual simulation and live out your days in the cloud as a kind of sim. You could literally and willingly hook yourself up to the matrix. When it's possible, would you do it? I absolutely would do it. Uh, just the opportunity to potentially see what's there in, in you know, decades or centuries, it just seems worthwhile just to have that chance. Of course, Randall would do it. It was a silly question. Because when Randall got to Silicon Valley, he met a community of people who thought in a similar way and he started his own foundation to study mind uploading. It's called Carbon Copies, and they're doing some seriously pioneering research. The Carbon Copies, uh, first and foremost, it's a community. The most important thing we do is we try to maintain a roadmap to whole brain emulation. 
Just like the Cacophony Society and the tech ravers of the 90s, the transhumanists have developed their own networks in the Bay Area. I think the reason why it keeps happening is that, uh, that the same sort of people, they keep coming here. And it's, it's always a new generation, another generation of uh, some young individual who doesn't have too much to lose. Nobody comes here and says, oh, I want to invent teleportation. And then somebody says, are you crazy? That's impossible. Typically, the answer is more something like, oh, wow, that's uh, pretty ambitious. Uh, how do you think you're going to go about that? Nothing impossible. Everything permitted. Carbon copies, the Cacophony Society, Burning Man, even the transhumanists. There's a thread which runs through them all. They're all really down to community. Movements like this don't just spring up overnight. They need to grow in an ecosystem that fosters them. You're living with all these other people who are all doing some startup or working at Stanford or something, and, uh, and they talk to each other about their ideas. Uh, it's not just tech entrepreneurs. It's usually, say, 60% tech entrepreneurs and 40% struggling artists who are making giant metal sculptures or something like that. And that happens all the time. The Bay Area is still a swirling mass of art, tech and mad ideas. Yes, it's got pricey to live there. Yes, the main tech companies are becoming increasingly part of the establishment. But in smaller startups and the progressive companies, the Silicon Valley utopian ethos, the community hell-bent on building mind-expanding tech has, in one form or another, basically stayed the same. And the transhumanists? Well, despite the often terrifying ambition of their goals, the rest of the 21st century is probably going to belong to them. It's going to be a world-defining culture that started in Silicon Valley and is now spreading across the world. I think the transhumanists are actually a very positive sign uh, that Silicon Valley is growing up and realizing kind of the power that it now welds. It's not just a bunch of crazy hippies on the fringes of civilization. They're actually at the center of the future and they're building the future and it, and it comes with great responsibility not to fuck up the future. Holy shit balls, man. Nano robots living in your bloodstream. Uh, living in your brain. Living in your brain. I mean, one thing that, <laughs> one thing that's really crazy is that the feedback loop of this sci-fi stuff, like the Arthur C. Clarke, the... Uh, <laughs> Philip K. Dick, all the stuff that we were talking about earlier, that actually stuff that for us is fantasy for them was like yeah. manuals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, this is where we should be headed. Yeah. And I am, I'm really ambiguous about all of it. I know. You know? Well, this conversation is going on now where it's like, you know, it's the thing of just because you can do it, should, should you do it mm. in more ways in the world than there ever has been. Yeah. We're at another point of that. That yeah. is yet to be defined. Yeah. And what's going na on now in the world is maybe affecting that or transforming mm, yeah, what's going to come. Once the technology catches up to the reality. Yeah. I mean, Randall th thought that for whole brain emulation, 2200 years, bar economic collapse was his. <laughs> well, we're on our way. <laughs> Which we're on our way to. But <laughs> yeah, it's kind of yeah. brain uploading on yeah. the back burner for a little bit. Here, here's a question for you, Harry, who's gone through this whole thing. Like, where do you come, on the other, come out on the other side of this whole madness that you've been through? I guess now how pervasive this transhumanist ideology seems to have got 
is not surprising, but kind of terrifying, I guess, because of this bubble, this Silicon Valley bubble idea that, yeah. that is definitely there. That if you're locked up in this bubble thinking, okay, this is going to work, we can do this, we can now do these crazy technological yeah. things, so we're just going to do it, we're not going to consider these ethical implications. Yeah. Where does where does that end? That's yeah. terrifying. Well, and we're, it's it's the before it was you know the symbiosis between tech and hippie punk culture music, uh, but this has the combination of tech and religion, mm. which mm, is yeah. like uh, it, that's what makes my little spider sense ting. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Put him in the battery. <laughs> <laughs> this one will be useful in millennia to come. <laughs> Put him in the battery. This week's saved pins are five tech spots in the valley you definitely don't want to miss. Number one is the Apple Park in Cupertino. So where do you start a trip to Silicon Valley? At the $5 billion offices of its most famous son, of course. The Apple Park and Visitor Center in Cupertino is a stone's throw away from San Jose and has an AR experience that lets you get a feel for what's really going on inside the infinite loop, the glass ring of an office where Apple's magic truly happens. Number two, the Computer History Museum. Once you've seen the modern end of computing, head 10 minutes up the road to the Computer History Museum in Mountain View to learn about technology's past, present, and future. This isn't some stuffy, dusty old place. Their mission is to decode technology for everyone, with interactive exhibitions, loads of great talks, and one of the world's biggest collections of old-school computers. Number three, Bucks of Woodside. After all that learning, you're going to be peckish, right? So you'll want to eat like all the tech elites do. The best place to do that is Bucks of Woodside, a classic diner with seriously eclectic decor in the heart of Silicon Valley. It's well known to all techies as a place to hatch plans for a new tech company. PayPal, Netscape, Hotmail, and Tesla were all started there over coffee and burgers. Number four, Half Moon Bay. If you're all teched out by now, don't worry, because the Bay Area is known for its natural beauty as much as its business innovation. So if you fancy sampling some of the fresh Pacific air or catching some waves, head to Half Moon Bay. It's not far from Redwood City. You can surf, hike, and enjoy some seriously good food and drink. The Half Moon Winery, which overlooks the Bay's cliffs, is a must if you want to try some top-notch Californian wines. And number five, Survival Research Labs. So you've seen the companies and the computers, you've eaten well and drank plenty. Now... Fighting robots. If, like us, you feel like you need to see Mark Pauline's creations in the flesh, you can head to Survival Research Laboratory's Warehouse Studio. It's about an hour north of San Fran and Petaluma. For a small fee, Mark will take you round to see the Predator Arm, the Hand of God, all of those monstrous creations. And if you're lucky, there might be a show going on too. Check out the SRL website before you go. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening. Next week, we're headed to Amsterdam. And no, we're not going to be smoking weed and going to the red light district. We're going classy. We're on the hunt for Vincent van Gogh, literally. We're going to meet the thief behind one of the biggest art heists of the 21st century. 
and the art detective hell-bent on getting those paintings back. We'll see you next week. Big thanks to Adam Fisher, Jason Sosa, Michael Michael, John Law, Mark Pauline, and Randall Cohen for their insight into one of the craziest places on Earth. Definitely take the time to read up more about their work. We've got all the info in the show notes. Our theme music is by the wonderful Nick Turner with extra tunes in this episode from Emily, Trifeme, Carla K. Barlow, Lobo Loco, Listen With Sarah, Keshko, Mystery Mama, Ego Plum, Sarah Vandalay, Sun Cuts, David French, Avant Garbage, and The Benign Ones. The show is mixed and mastered by Julian Kwasniewski. Eliza Engel is our production assistant. Hi, Eliza. Stacy Book, Dominic Ferrari, and Avi Glijanski are our divine AI overlords, and the executive produced the show, which is hosted by me and a man who is really just a brain in a vat of primordial sludge, Andres Bartos. We'll see you in the next place. Mm-hmm.